Finding your Bibles, Revelation chapter 11. That's where we're going to be today, Revelation chapter 11. This is part two of this sermon, so you'll hear plenty today to keep your mind moving, but by all means, if you missed last week, go back on the website and either listen online or, or watch the YouTube of the sermon to catch both halves. So by way of review and your notes under the topic Revelation 11, 1 through 4, I want to go through some things from last week to, to remind us, to set the tone for what's happening, clarify a couple things. If you have that timeline I gave you last week, get that out, set it next to you. That would be uh, helpful in just looking at it every once in a while to see how things are lining up. Check the references to time that I'm giving you. So number one in your notes, we learned that there is a working temple during the tribulation period. We looked at uh, a couple of passages. There are several more that just mention a temple. And we realize that there hasn't been a temple in Jerusalem for a couple thousand years. The temple worship ended in 70 AD when the temple was destroyed. It's never been rebuilt since then. So to learn that there is a functioning temple during the tribulation is kind of big news to us. Something drastic will have to change. Uh, a world-changing world event will take place that will allow the Jewish people to rebuild the temple. Now that could happen before the tribulation, before the rapture. The temple could be functioning for many years before the rapture. We're not told when it will be restated and, and restarted. But we do know that it is functioning during the tribulation. So either beforehand, for any number of years, or right at the very beginning of the tribulation, in that, that time where the Antichrist and the coalition takes basic charge of the world, part of those events may precipitate the temple being put back into practice. So it is operational. They are offering sacrifices. They are collecting offerings. And it will be functioning just like that, just like it used to for the first three and a half years of the tribulation. So we are, in our timeline, right at the very end, six, six and three-quarter years into the tribulation, just ready to turn the corner and for the whole thing to be over. And we've, we've taken a, a breath, taken a break, and now we're, we're, we're asked to look back, and God's kind of saying, let me fill in the blanks. Let me fill in the blanks, some things we haven't talked about in Revelation. And so here we are. We know from Daniel and from Thessalonians that the temple's been functioning. It's been doing its normal practice for the first three and a half years of the tribulation. Right at the three and a half year mark in the tribulation, the Antichrist will stop all operations. Now, they won't run out of sacrifices, and they won't run out of things to need forgiveness for. They won't, um, on their own, say, well, we're done now. It will be stopped. Uh, think of military action or a, a presidential decree or something like that. And we don't even know what the government will be called or, or what terms will be used, but the Antichrist, who's, who's by now in charge of the government... He will take it over and he will stop it. This is probably in conjunction with the hostile takeover, where he literally steps out of, of the shadows. He is the Antichrist. He is now singularly in charge of the worldwide government. That happens about three and a half years in. And in that process, he takes over. Now, we don't know what he does. 
It could be that he just locks the doors and sets a guard and says, you guys aren't going to use this anymore. I don't like what's happening. It could be that, that he goes in and, and uses it for his headquarters. He could do any number of things. We, we don't know what he's going to do, but he will take control of the temple. So he'll stop all operations and take control of the temple. It'll stay that way for the next two and a half, two and three quarter years, okay? And then right before the bull judgments begin, which is the next thing in our timeline, about six and three quarter years in, it's not a specific date, that's an about date, right around that time, the Antichrist will commit the abomination of desolation and the two witnesses will be called to heaven. I'm going to get a little ahead of myself, but I want to, I want to continue laying out this timeline. So the temple is operational for three and a half years, the first three and a half years of the tribulation. Then the Antichrist takes over the temple and says no more sacrifices, no more offerings. He shuts it down, and whatever he does with it, we don't know. But he does that for the next two and a half, two and three quarter years, three, three, a little bit more than three years. And he's in charge of it. And then the two witnesses come into play. We haven't mentioned them yet today. We talked about them last week. We'll talk more about them today. They have been preaching for that near three and a half years. So from the time he closed the temple on, these two witnesses have been preaching. And, and we're going to see where that's part of God's plan. Then at the time when the two witnesses die, which is in our text today, it's as if that gives the Antichrist the, the nerve, if you will, or the excitement, or the empowerment to go into the temple and declare himself to be God. Remember last week we determined that was the abomination of desolation, when the Antichrist claims to be God. Which is, in effect, Satan claiming to be God, because by now Satan has indwelled the Antichrist. They're the same person. So the Antichrist goes in, claims to be God, and that's at, at about the same time that the two witnesses die and are taken to heaven. So let me break that timeline down. The two witnesses are finally killed. We're going to read today that for that first three and a quarter years or so they preached, they were not able to be killed. All of a sudden the Antichrist shows up and he's able to kill them. They lay on the street for three and a half days. The world celebrates. There's a party. I think the Antichrist, after killing the unkillable, takes that opportunity to step right on into the temple and declare himself to be God. And I think for three days or so, he's reeling in his accomplishment. He's being celebrated worldwide. Everything's great. They're actually giving each other gifts to celebrate the fact that these two witnesses are dead. And then it says three and a half days after they were killed, God breathes life into them. They stand up. And believe me, that creates a ruckus. The Antichrist has been reeling in his power. People have been so excited that these two irritants on the world have been eliminated. They celebrate all over the world. They give gifts, and then they rise up again. The feeling that they're experiencing is, oh, no. What they could do before they died, and now we killed them and celebrated, what are they going to do now? But instead, a voice from heaven says, come up here, and then they go to heaven. 
That's a three and a half day timeline there. So there's a lot of, lot of things going on there that you can see in your chart. But we know there's a working temple. Number two, even as the sacrifices and offerings are made in the temple, the Jewish religion continues to be a false religion. I said that last week, and it got a little bit of attention, which was surprising, because when we studied Matthew, and we studied Mark, and we studied John, in, in the Gospels, I said over a hundred times, maybe a thousand times, that the Jewish religion is a false religion. And it has remained a false religion. Now, it wasn't always a false religion. Judaism was was the religious practice of God's chosen people, and they looked forward to a Messiah. They looked forward to their sins being forgiven. They offered sacrifices in, in, in that, the, the process of looking for it, and they said, we depend on God for our salvation. And that was the proper way to do it. But sometime in what, in what they call the silent years, between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament, Things got changed around, all of a sudden Jesus comes on the scene, we start reading the Gospels, and we find out that it is now a works-based religion. They are now counting on the fact that they didn't do this, and they didn't do that, and they didn't do this, but they did do these four things, and they did them when someone else didn't, so that elevates them even more. So they're relying on their merit, and their works, and their position, and their accomplishments to get into heaven. It had completely changed. No longer were they saying, God, forgive me for my sins uh, and, and take me to heaven for, and I, I'm yours. Now they approach God and say, here's my accomplishments. You have to let me in. And that's what Judaism had become. So Judaism at that point was a false religion. That's why Jesus confronted the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the teachers of the law. That is also why that same group of people hated Jesus. He was infringing on the authority and position and, and wealth they had accumulated, and he was trying to show the people that's not how you do this. So they had great conflict, and that's ultimately what led to Jesus being crucified in their minds. So Judaism had become a false religion before Jesus showed up, and now that the temple is rebuilt and they start the old practices they're sacrificing. Now they're a false religion because the sacrifice has already been made. The Jewish people today, and many of them have, they're called Messianic Jews. Many of the Jews today in that category, all of the Messianic Jews, they have recognized that they missed Jesus the first time. He was the Messiah. He was the atoning sacrifice. He was their opportunity for salvation, and they have embraced it. And there's organizations all over the world of Messianic Jews who do nothing but evangelize fellow Jews and try to show them the previous heir and the current heir and show them who the Messiah is so they can be saved. So there's a lot of Jewish people around us today who are believing Christians. And some of them are, are, have a far greater understanding of, of God and the scriptures because of their Jewish background than even we do. But the majority of the Jewish people today actually don't practice any religion, but the majority of the religious Jews today are on that workspace. I'm going to get in on my merit. But when the temple starts operating, there's going to be a bunch of Jews who say, oh, hey, we're back in the game. 
We're, we're back to the old ways. We're going to be making sacrifices. And they're going to be making sacrifices looking forward to a Messiah. Well, the Messiah they're looking forward to has already come and already died and already been the sacrifice. And if they're looking forward and refusing to look back, they're going to miss the Messiah and they are still a false religion. So during the tribulation, the temple will be operational. It will be run by a false religion of, of people who are trying to get to God on their own by reinstating old methods. Here's the beauty of this whole thing, is that God is allowing this to happen. Let's, let's go through A, B, and C back in your notes. A, they became a false religion when they changed from a faith-based salvation in the atoning work of the Messiah to a works-based religion focused on their rules and practices. B, Satan will allow them to do this. Why? Satan will allow them to practice sacrifice and offering because it will be the continuation of a false religion which serves his purpose of keeping man from connecting with God. Any, any religion that points you away from God, Satan's in favor of. He'll help you build a church, he'll help you get on TV, he'll help you do whatever you have to do to lead more people away from Christ. He is fully into religion, fully into spirituality. He will do whatever it takes to, to keep you from finding the true Messiah, to find Jesus as your Savior. So, so he's all excited about this in the beginning because he's keeping these people from finding Christ. See, in your notes, God will allow them to practice sacrifice and offering because it will remind them that there must be a sacrifice for the forgiveness of sin. And when this, is, when this is taken away at the closing of the temple, many will ask, what are we supposed to do now? What are we supposed to do now? And the two witnesses will be present to give them the answer. So we ask the question, why did God allow this? Well, God is setting them back up to have a realization. Remember, the entire book of Revelation is about God reaching out to humanity, saying, it's time right now, repent, get saved, Gain forgiveness of your sins because you don't have a lot of time left. And by allowing the temple to become operational, the Jewish people will start thinking about sacrifice. What is a sacrifice? Why are we killing this lamb or this goat or this oxen? Why are we giving all these animals that we could use for something else? Why is this taking place? Why does blood have to be shed? What's this altar all about? Who are these people that are leading this? What is all this? And they'll ask those questions. And their answer will be, this is how we did it in the past. And it, it's how we get right with God. And they'll start to buy into this. And then it ends when the Antichrist steps in. And you might think the Antichrist is winning, but no, God is winning. Because now God has two witnesses in Jerusalem preaching the true Messiah. And I'm sure part of their message is, you thought that was going to get you into heaven, but no, it will not. It has been Jesus Christ who died on the cross that is your way to heaven. That's how you gain forgiveness of your sins. And that's all part of the process, and it, it all blends together so nicely. Satan thinks he's winning, but it's not. He's not. God is winning. Satan thinks he's, Satan thinks he's accomplishing something, but he's not. God is accomplishing something, which just shows us again God's sovereignty, that even in what he allows Satan to do, it is 
part of his plan. Number three, we read that they measured the temple, and I told you that's God saying that he's about to take it back. Taking measurements, I'm about to take my temple back. And number four, by not measuring the Gentile court or the outer court, God is saying that the Gentile court will have no border, which is really good news because we're all in that place. We're all welcome at the temple. Now, number five in this passage, God is showing us even more of what he has been doing during the first 6.75 years of the tribulation. The seventh trumpet is next. The seventh trumpet is about to blow, and remember that includes the seven bowls. So this chapter is God filling in the blanks, telling us things we need to know. He's really saying, before we move on, let me tell you a few more things that have been going on. And what are we supposed to take from that? More. Wow, God really is in charge. Look what he's been doing. Wow, God really is all about evangelism. Look what else he's done. Wow, God is merciful. Look how long this has been going on. Look how God was patient while Satan was doing what Satan was doing. So everything we've talked about is amplified because we look back. Now let's look at the rest, or the next section of this, Revelation 11, 5 through 14. We're going to read this, make some comments along the way. It says, if anyone tries to harm them, that would be the two witnesses, fire comes from their mouths and devours their enemies. Think about that for a couple seconds. This is something that's never been done before. Uh, this is Marvel comic type level stuff. No longer is it science fiction. Now it's reality. These people are going to preach for, for nearly three and a half years. During that entire time, people are going to try to kill them. One guy just mouths off and says, I'm going to kill you, and they're gone. Uh, that's what it's going to sound like, I'm sure. The, the next guy says, oh, well, he didn't know what he's doing. I'm going in. He's gone. Then a military expert shows up. He's gone. Then they come in pairs and in triples and in squads, and they're all gone. I can't keep doing that. I'm getting a dry mouth. <laughs> but picture, for three and a half years, they try, to, they try to kill him. He says, this is how anyone who wants to harm them must die. Verse 6, they have power to shut up the heavens so that it will not rain during the time they are prophesying. And they have power to turn the waters into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they want. So during the same period of time, nearly three and a half years, they're preaching. They are killing people with their breath who try to harm them. During that same time, they can stop the rain so they can control the weather. They can stop rain and start rain at will. They can also call down plagues from heaven at will. So God has given them ample testimony and ample proof that they're from God. And then they're prophesying, sharing their testimony. They're preaching about what's happening, about who Jesus was and what he did, about what's coming in the future. For two and a half, three and a half, three and three quarter years, preaching constantly. That's what they're doing. And they have this power. They have the attention of the entire world. This is, these are worldwide events now. Verse 7. 
Now that they had finished their testimony, completed, finished, gotten to the end, fulfilled their task, their assignment, it says the beast that comes from the abyss will attack them. We'll talk more about this, but the beast is the Antichrist. This is the first time he's been called that, the first time we've seen this word in Revelation. Coming from the abyss as the power of Satan, okay, will attack them and overpower them and kill them. You see why it's such a big deal, why the Antichrist would feel so empowered by killing these two guys? No one's come close to killing them for nearly three and a half years. And then he decides to take it on himself. He shows up, and with the power of Satan, he kills them. All right, verse 8. Their bodies will lie in the public square of the great city. This is Jerusalem, which is figuratively called Sodom in Egypt. Sodom because of their great sin in Egypt because of their many gods or things they worship. Okay? Where also their Lord was crucified. So we know it's Jerusalem. For three and a half days, some from every people, tribe, language, and nation will gaze on their bodies and refuse to bury them. It's worldwide. People are going to see, and they're just going to leave them there. Verse 10. The inhabitants of the earth, worldwide, will gloat over them and will celebrate by sending each other gifts. They're going to gloat over them. Ah, they thought they were invincible. We got them. We showed them. Our guy, he showed up. He took care of them. Our guy's the best guy. These guys are losers. We knew we could win, blah, blah, blah. They celebrate by sending each other gifts. Hey, you know what? I got you this just so you can remember the day when they died. Oh, what a great day it was. Here's a present for you. Hey, kids, here's some cool stuff for you. Don't ever forget when this happened. They did this because the two prophets had tormented those who live on the earth. How have they tormented them? By telling the truth. This is who God is. This is what God did. This is what Jesus did. This is what he offers. This is what's going to happen if you reject. And this is what's going to happen in the near future. Those who have rejected Christ do not want to hear about Christ. And so they are tormented. Because it's kind of hard not to listen to these two guys that can't die. That you can't kill. Who can stop the weather patterns. Who can call on plagues at will to start and end. Verse 11, but after three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them. Laying on the ground, all of a sudden, all of a sudden they breathed the breath of life, and they stood on their feet, and terror struck those who saw them. Do you remember being eight, nine, ten years old? You're left alone for a little while. Maybe you have some friends over, and your parents are giving you some space. You and your friends or you and your siblings, you're doing something that is so fun, exciting. You're having just the best time ever. And then the door opens and dad is standing in the door and he sees what you're doing. You don't remember that feeling. Your heart sinks into your chest. You're instantly silent. And the only thing you can do is beg for mercy. That's what's going on here. Terror struck those who saw them. 
Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. The terror was, if, if that's what they did when they were alive, and then we killed them, and they came back to life, what are they going to do now? Terror. And the voice from heaven said, Come up here. And they left. And I don't think that comforted them. I don't think they went, Phew. I think that was more like mom leaving the room and saying, I'm going to send dad in. It was more like, uh, you two, come on, come on back, I'll take care of this. Okay? And they went up to heaven in a cloud while their enemies looked on. Verse 13, at that very hour, there was a severe earthquake. It said hour, not minute. Did you catch that? It didn't say at that very moment or at that very minute. It said at that very hour. So I think there was a little bit of time. It came fast enough, but they had plenty of time to think about it. Oh no, what's going to happen next? What is going to be the response? Because they know God was, they know God's on the scene now. There's no question about that. At that very hour, there was a severe earthquake, and a tenth of the city collapsed. A tenth of the city collapsed. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake, and the survivors were terrified. Still terrified. Important to recognize, they're terrified. They're not repentant. They're terrified. And it says, and gave glory to the God of heaven. Now, don't think that they repented in their terror. This is still, picture yourself as that child. They're saying whatever they have to say to get this to stop. Now, when my kids were younger, we used to wrestle. Uh, you know, especially the boys, they wanted to challenge Dad. One day we're going to get you, Dad. And we'd wrestle, and I'd tickle them, and I'd get them all bound up where they can't move their arms or their legs, and they'd go, let me go, let me go. And I would make them say, who's the biggest and the strongest? <laughs> so they'd say, let me go, and I'd say, who's the biggest and the strongest? And I would not let them go until they said, you are. Then I go, you're what? They go, you're the biggest and the strongest. And then I would instantly let them go. That was a little game we played. We did it all the time. If they're listening to this sermon, I'll let them in on a secret. One of the reasons I don't wrestle with them now is that I don't want to say that to them. <laughs> the other reason is I don't recover quite as fast as I used to. But I don't want to say that to them. But that was our little thing. And that's kind of what's happening here. They are so terrified that they're running around going, glory to God, glory to God, glory to God. Like, don't get me. Don't drop another tenth of the city on me. Don't kill me like the others. They're, they're simply trying to get on God's good side. And then verse 14, the second woe has passed. The third woe is coming. And, and you might say, hold it. I thought the second woe had already passed. We talked about that in another sermon. Well, it did. But remember, we're looking back and we're filling in the blanks. So the second woe had completed. Remember, that is when the people refused to acknowledge God and they, they went on sinning and they went on worshiping idols and they would not repent. They refused to repent. Well, we've gone back and now we're caught up again. We're at that same moment in time where these people, they're not repenting. They're just trying to stay alive. And so the second woe 
bringing it all together, the second woe is the total rejection of God. That is a judgment. That is the worst thing anyone can do, to reject God. And so mankind as a whole has now collectively rejected God. There are many believers. There are many people who have been saved. They are the minority. They are the exception. But the vast amount of mankind has completely rejected God. And so we're back here again at the same place. The second woe has passed. The, the woe, the, the worst thing that can happen is that mankind has, has completely rejected God. And you look at verse 15, the title above is the seventh trumpet. Remember, the seventh trumpet is the seven bowls, and they're called the seven bowls of God's wrath. And he will pour out his wrath upon the very same mankind who has said, I don't want you. I will not recognize you. I will not repent. And so they have done the very worst thing they can do, and in the very near future, God is going to respond. Probably, in, in actually, within days or maybe less than that. So that's what's going on. That's our section of Scripture today. Let's go back to our notes. In, in number one and in number two, you see it says 2.75 years. That should be 3.25 years. Just cross that out and rewrite it. That's just an error that occurred. Fix it right now before we read it. So number one in your notes, during the last 3.25 years, while the two witnesses have been preaching, okay, so that's your, that's your reference, that's the context, while these two guys were preaching, A, they cannot be killed. They cannot be killed. If any tries, they are burned by their fire breath. I couldn't think of a better way to say that. Their fire breath. B, they can stop the rain, turn water to blood, and call down plagues at will. That's, that's the display of God in them. That's the display of, of God validating their message. They're preaching and say, just so you know that what I'm saying is from God, it's not going to rain for four days, but on the fifth day it's going to be a downpour. No rain for four days, fifth day downpour. They have the power to do that. Just so you know that what I'm telling you is true, there's going to be locusts like was described in, back in Egypt, and then it would happen. Just so you know, God's in control. They'll all be gone at 6 o'clock tonight. They're gone. They had that kind of control in order to validate the message from God. Okay? And see, they are prophesying and giving their testimony. Well, what is their testimony? Their testimony is their relationship with God. What are they prophesying? This prophesying here is not foretelling the future. This is preaching the truth. What are they preaching? They're preaching the Old Testament truth to the Jews. They're teaching New Testament truth. They're teaching fulfilled prophecy. They're preaching the gospel. They're preaching repentance. And they're saying what's going to happen because they have the book in front of them. So they are preaching everything that this group of people needs to hear. That happens for 3.25 years. Number two, at the end of the 3.25 years of preaching, so at the end of that, right before the boils are poured, okay, at the end of their preaching, A, the two witnesses have finished their testimony. 
where they're preaching. It's very important to recognize that word it used in Scripture, finished. They have accomplished their task. They did what God sent them to do. They were there exactly the number of days that God ordained them to preach. So it isn't that, oh no, the Antichrist got them this time. It's that God said, you're done. They finished the job. And then B, the beast comes from the abyss. The, pe- the beast that comes from the abyss will kill them. Now I want to say a few things about the beast. So Roman number one, this is the first of nine times the beast is mentioned in Revelation. All of a sudden we're going to hear about the beast. All of a sudden we're going to be talking about things we've never talked about before. The beast is the Antichrist. Every time that the beast is mentioned, we're getting a little bit more information about them. When I looked ahead, I was a little confused because it says the, the beasts that come from the abyss this time, the next time he's the beast that come out of the sea. And I'm like, hold it. Does that mean the abyss is in the sea? What's going on? So I did some research. I consulted some experts. And, and, and what we have here is every time the beast is mentioned, we gained a little bit more information. So the abyss tells us what we need to know today. So he's the, the beast that came from the abyss. Number two, his, identify, his identity and description will build over chapters 12 through 22. And Roman numeral number three, the abyss lets us know his power is from Satan. I believe at this point in time, Satan and the Antichrist are acting as one. Satan has, has possessed, if you will, the, the Antichrist. He's not just, in, not just supporting and empowering him. Now he's possessed him. So the abyss tells us this person has the power of Satan. That's how they were able to kill them. Not that God couldn't stop them because, number four, their death is only possible because God allowed it. Okay, Satan didn't have victory. God allowed Satan to have the victory. It was for God's purposes. Satan thought he was accomplishing something, but God was. Why did God allow it? Well, their work was done. It was finished. He intended to bring them home before the bull judgment, so the timing was there. And then see, their deaths empower the Antichrist to claim godhood. The fact that the Antichrist showed up and killed them, he probably thought, wow, I have arrived now. I am everything I always thought I would be. And he's going to march right into the temple and he's going to say, and now I'm God. And and God's just going to let him sit there and kind of kind of finish the, the sin, kind of waller in his own squall for a while, and, and he's going to be there, and then see the deaths are celebrated for three and a half days by the entire world, and then God brings them back to life. During that three and a half days, we have the abomination of desolation, that declaration of, of he is God. Then they're raised from the dead. Remember, they're terrified. Okay, three, after this resurrection, one-tenth of the city collapses by an earthquake. 7,000 people are killed in the earthquake. The survivors gave glory to God, but it was not necessarily worship. Now, there probably were some. There probably were some that worshiped God because the city was not not void of believers, a void of Christians. So the Christians also experienced the earthquake. Maybe some Christians died 
in the 7,000. So they weren't the only ones there, but the majority of people, mankind as a whole who was there, they were not worshiping God. They were trying to get God to stop. They were trying to uh, appease him by saying what they think he wanted to say. Like my kids saying, you're the biggest and the strongest. Number four, the second woe has passed. So woe number two is the removal of the two witnesses, or more correctly, the total rejection of God by mankind. Signified by God removing the two witnesses. So this is what God's saying by removing the two witnesses. He's saying, you guys have sealed your fate. What's done is done. You've said what you need to say. You're not going to repent. Therefore, I will take my witnesses back. There is no more opportunity. We've talked about this. When the bowls of wrath are poured, it is now response to their decisions. It is no longer evangelism. Six and three-quarter years of evangelism, a quarter of a year or less in God's response. B, this is why we had to look back and gain the specific information. I don't know if you do this, but I do. When I read a passage, I ask the question, why is this here? What am I supposed to gain from this? What am I supposed to notice? And we go all the way to the end, and all of a sudden, verse 14 says, the second woe has passed. And I went, hold it. The second woe already passed. What's going on here? We're looking back. God brought, we have the story already been told. The second woe passed. Then we have this new story that was happening simultaneously come to the same point in time, and the second woe has passed. The second woe, then, we know for sure is the total rejection of God because it happened both times. And that's what brings on God's response. So verse 15 is the seventh trumpet. And the seventh trumpet's going to blow, and then we're going to have a whole bunch of more information before we actually see the bulls. So we're going to keep marching forward. We're going to get through this. We're going to learn everything we need to learn, everything we can learn. I'm having a blast. I hope you are. If you're not, fake it on the way out because it makes me feel good. <laughs> Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for the lessons we're learning, the insights we have about who you are and how you operate and what you do, the fact that you are so concerned about our salvation that you go through this entire process after you died on the cross for our sins and after you gave us your scripture and, and the entire Bible and all the people over the years that have preached and taught us. Thank you so much that, that you love mankind that much. And Father, I pray that just understanding this would encourage us that, that you are the ultimate winner. It may not seem like we're winning now. As a matter of fact, it's, it, it, the Bible says that, that we're not winning now because it's not our fight. It's your fight. And when you choose to use us, we get to be a part of the victory, but it's your fight and you will win. And that's encouraging. Help us to serve you well, to trust you more, to believe your promises. And Father, if there's anyone here who has not accepted you as their Lord and Savior, has not had their sins forgiven, I pray that you would provide another opportunity for them to have a conversation with somebody. Maybe, maybe someone who brought them, maybe someone they're sitting by, maybe someone who's a, a deacon or, or me the pastor. Let those conversations take place so that we can celebrate those salvations. 
Be with us this week. Help us serve you well. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.